This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Greetings. After what looked like a lull in the state capitol following the historic breakthrough agreement on auto insurance rate reform, reduction of rates, uh, signed into law by Governor Whitmer last week, uh, things heated up again this week very quickly. We had a whole bunch of things going on. Uh, the budget is moving, and the key thing about the state budget at this point is how is money going to be produced by the legislature that even comes close to fix the damn roads, the amount requested by Governor Gretchen Whitmer at the start of the year? Uh, The partial answer came in a House Appropriations Subcommittee meeting when they put out a transportation budget that underscores the demand by Speaker Lee Chatfield, who we hope to hear from later in the program, about all the money collected by the state in gas tax revenue at the pump should go to fixing the damn roads and repairing infrastructure and maintenance or roads, bridges, and highways throughout Michigan. That's what he says. Believe it or not, Michigan is one of just a handful of states that doesn't take all of its money collected at the pump from drivers in gas taxes and sales tax on gas, which we have here in Michigan, which is also rare, and devote it to fixing the damn roads and repairing and maintaining our infrastructure in Michigan. No, some of it goes to other purposes, K-12 education, local government. And the speaker has basically said this practice has got to end We've got to keep it simple for the taxpayers and the drivers. We've got to make sure that all the money collected at the pump goes to fix the damn roads, repairing, maintaining, building infrastructure in Michigan, which is in very bad shape. Uh, Estimates by a lot of experts, as I think everybody has been hearing, uh, has fallen into such disrepair that $2.5 billion a year for 10 solid years into the future is needed to bring our roads and bridges and highways up to, let's say, 90% high quality. Right now, it's hovering below 50%. So that's the first thing that happened this week. But if you take all the money uh, collected at the pump and give it for the first time in recent Michigan history, uh, it seems like forever, and give it entirely to roads, bridges, and highways, and not any of it to K-12 education or local government, where is K-12 education or local government going to get their money? So that's a big question, and the House um, Republican majority insists they're going to be able to come up with that by cutting other sections of state government and doing a few other things that will give money to the schools and hold them harmless in this uh, transaction. 
Democrats in the minority uh, have their doubts, grave doubts, that that's going to do the trick. But on the other hand, the Democrats have not produced any alternative plan to the 45 cent per gallon increase that Governor Whitmer recommended at the beginning of the year, which obviously is going nowhere in the legislature. That's not going to happen. So the question is, is more money going to get in to fix the damn roads? And if so, where is it going to come from? Well, that's what we started to see this week. Now, there were some other developments this week in uh, unrelated fields, like, for instance, Line 5. Are we ever going to hear the end of that? No, we're not. For a considerable time extending into the future, Line 5 under the Straits of Mackinac carrying oil produced by Enbridge, Canadian company, through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, across the Straits, or I should say under the Straits, into the Lower Peninsula, and out again into Canada, around the Port Huron area. Um, That is, again, in the spotlight because negotiations between Enbridge and Governor Whitmer on whether Line 5 should be shut down entirely, and if so, when, uh, or... uh, could something be done to build a tunnel under the straits, which at the end of last year it looked like was the plan, uh, be determined? Uh, or is nothing going to happen? Um, and Enbridge going to continue on into the future with its present pipeline uh, under the straits, which all environmentalists and, frankly, majority of the population in polls here in the state of Michigan are very worried uh, could result in an anchor strike, which has already happened once, and an oil spill into the Great Lakes, which would be a catastrophe. So with talks broken down between Governor Whitmer and Enbridge, uh, Enbridge actually went to court this week. They filed suit in the state court of claims saying that the state has reneged on its promises uh, made at the end of last year when Governor Rick Snyder was in office. Uh, And that created a new tunnel authority, and it paved the way going forward for a new uh, secure pipeline to be built, hopefully within four to five years, which Enbridge says it can do, to house the pipeline coming from the Upper Peninsula into the Lower Peninsula. Uh, Enbridge says the state is reneging on that, and they've gone to court to try and get the court to say the state should honor uh, the obligations that Enbridge felt it got from the state at the end of last year and allow Enbridge to work this out with the cooperation and the authority of the state. Um, Well, Dana Nessel, the attorney general, has basically said all along, we've talked about it on this program, that if the governor does not reach a deal with Enbridge by the end of this month, she is going to move to decommission Line 5 and perhaps shut it down completely, which Enbridge argues, and anybody in the energy industry would argue, uh, would be a disaster for particularly the Upper Peninsula propane supply for energy up there that comes from the pipeline. So this is all going on, and we'll talk about it hopefully in a few minutes more with our guest. Um, There were 
Other developments this week, uh, you may remember back in the early 1990s, Kalkaska School District in northern Michigan uh, just shut down before the end of the school year. They said, we're broke, uh, we can't finish the school year, and they just stopped operating. And that really, as much as anything, precipitated the lead-up to what was called Proposal A, which was put on the ballot uh, in March of 1994, that solved, quote-unquote, the question of how to finance K-12 public education in Michigan, shifting it away from property taxes to a hike in the state sales tax from 6 to 8%. And the voters approved that in Michigan overwhelmingly. Uh, that plan has been in effect now for 25 years, but now... Uh, there are districts in a lot of trouble financially still in Michigan and Benton Harbor this week announced their $16 million in debt. Uh, they can't continue to operate. The state has moved in, uh, Governor Whitmer and the Treasury Department, and said, okay, we're going to have to uh, shut down the high school in Benton Harbor. We're going to send the students to area high schools and to a local community college. Uh, we'll try and keep the middle school going. But uh, that was met with a lot of resistance uh, from Benton Harbor citizens, the school board, and the Legislative Black Caucus. So Governor Whitmer went to Benton Harbor, said, I'll give you another week to figure this out. And that's it. Uh, folks, we could go on. There are other things that happened this week, and I'll get to them in a minute. But... We've got to cut off now, and I'll be back with our first guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we've got a very special guest. He is the Speaker of the State House of Representatives, Lee Chatfield. Republican of Levering, representing the 107th House District, which I believe includes Emmett County in its entirety, and I think six townships in neighboring Sheboygan County, and then two counties in the eastern Upper Peninsula, Mackinac and Chippewa counties. Is that correct? Speaker Lee Chatfield, welcome. That is correct, Bill, and it's a pleasure to be on, and the easiest way to describe it, I have two counties above the bridge and two counties below the bridge, but it's a pleasure to be on the show with you this morning. It's a pleasure to have you, and uh, that is unique. Out of 110 representative districts in the state, you're the only one that bridges the Straits of Mackinac, and you have pieces of both peninsulas, and more specifically to this question, Line 5 under the Straits of Mackinac, that's entirely within your district, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. I see you put out a statement yesterday about it. Can you just bring us up to speed on what you think is going on and what's likely to happen? Sure. Well, you know, with Line 5, it's certainly got a lot of attention over the past several years uh, because, you know, Bill, there's a lot of important energy resources that are transported through Line 5. And, and one misconception uh, is that these, uh, these resources are only utilized by people who live in northern Michigan. The fact is people across the entire state of Michigan benefit from these resources uh, to heat their homes, to, to feed their families. I mean, these are, 
these are important resources that we are going to use one way or the other. And uh, obviously right now there's, it appears that Enbridge is going to be taking the state of Michigan to court simply because uh, we're not upholding our end of the bargain with a bill that was signed um, uh, into law by Governor Snyder. So, you know, my first responsibility, Bill, is to ensure our Great Lakes are protected. And when pipelines are properly maintained and inspected, they remain the safest way to transport uh, these, these energy resources, natural gas, liquids. And, you know, with taking a step forward with Enbridge last year, with ensuring that a tunnel was going to be built, I mean, this was going to be state-of-the-art construction. We were going to be leading the country in this. It is the right solution because to date, Bill, I have not seen an alternative proposal to how people on the Upper Peninsula and across our state are going to get these resources without seeing uh, this pipeline and tunnel uh, built. So step number one was take the pipeline out of the water as it was going into a tunnel. It's the right solution for our state, and I hate to see what's happening right now, but, you know, it's going to be in the courts, and it's not a surprise. I think, uh, you know, the Attorney General certainly ran on this. She's got a job that she's got to do. I disagree with her position on it, but I'm going to be doing all I can to ensure that the uh, the bills that were passed last term, signed into law, are, are held intact and we uphold our end of the bargain. Has Attorney General Dana Nessel and Governor Whitmer been irresponsible in talking about shutting down Line 5 or decommissioning it, just stopping it, period, cold, turkey, uh, with no alternative? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll leave phrasing or labeling what their actions are up to those in the press. I will tell you this. I do think to shut the line down without an alternative proposal uh, could be dangerous to every single person who lives in the state of Michigan, uh, particularly in northern Michigan and the UP. So I do think it's irresponsible if it were shut down without a plan. I have not seen a plan yet, Bill. Um, so I'm going to be, I'm still holding hope uh, that we can come to an agreement uh, with Enbridge. Uh, it did sound by everything I read this week that the administration and Enbridge could not come to an agreement, and I was not privy to all those conversations. I was not in the room for those. Um, but, you know, it's my hope that we can see these energy resources transported in the safest way possible. And there is no disputing that a tunnel with a brand-new line running through it would be the safest way possible. And my, you know, my fear is that politics is getting getting in the way of good policy. Uh, but, again, I'm optimistic that there can be there can be an agreement had, and hopefully um, in the courts, uh, you know, the state of Michigan upholds our end of the bargain that we gave them last year. Let's switch to fix the damn roads. I know you have been a strong advocate of making sure that for the first time, if not ever, certainly in recent Michigan history, all the gas tax revenue or sales tax on gas collected at the pump goes to fix the damn roads or repairing and maintaining our infrastructure in Michigan, roads, bridges, and highways. And it looks like a budget bill just moved out of a House subcommittee this week that is headed in that direction, uh, which would also mean that there's going to have to be some shift in financing for other purposes. Can you explain uh, your position on that and what is likely to happen in the legislature with the governor on that issue? Well, I think my position is something that I think the average person that's paying gas at the pump um, has, you know, Bill, and I would challenge you to go to the, go to the gas station, find someone who's pumping up uh, their car, you know, putting gas in the tank, and ask them, do you think the taxes that you're paying at the pump should go towards roads? The fact is every single person at the gas station thinks the answer is yes. Here's the problem. Everyone wants to focus on the symptom. The symptom is that our roads are not in the best condition. 
but they're just focusing on the symptom without looking at the root of the problem. The root of the problem is, Bill, that we pay in state, in, in, when you compare Michigan to the rest of the country, we pay in the top five, the top five of all states in taxes at the pump. So it's not, the problem isn't we're not paying enough. The real problem is when you look at the percentage of what is taken from the pump and given to roads, we're in the bottom five. So we have a road funding problem. And what I've been saying from day one, I'm not even going to have the conversation of new revenue. Until every single penny that's paid at the pump in taxes is a penny that goes towards roads. Let's first utilize the money that we are currently paying at the pump. Let's put that to roads. That's roughly eight to nine hundred million dollars annually. And the House actually stepped up and we delivered that this week uh, with a two-year phase in, shifting four percent of the six percent sales tax in the first year and then finishing off the two percent next year. Um, that's a responsible first step, and look forward to continuing to negotiate with the administration on that. Sounds totally reasonable. The only problem problem for K-12 education and I guess local governments is uh, they're getting a lot of this money from gas tax revenue at the pump, which you have pointed out really should not be going to them in the first place, but it has been. And as you know, if you've got a constituency that is getting a source of revenue and all of a sudden it's cut off, they say, hey, wait a second, what about us? Uh, Make us whole. How do you keep funding for K-12 education at the level it's at right now or perhaps improved with the procedure that you just outlined? Well, we did a deep dive, Bill, into the budget this term, and I commend Chair Hernandez from Port Huron for, for his work because, you know, we commissioned him with the responsibility of ensuring that we could make this transition at the pump while also not just backfilling money to K-12, but also giving them an increase. And you'll see when you go through the details of our budget that we don't just hold schools harmless in this transition. We're actually giving them an increase in their per-pupil foundation allotment uh, from last year. So not only are we making this transition, we're actually giving an increase to K-12. And I think, Bill, it's just a strong testament um, to what can happen when you actually look at the budget and you crunch the numbers. And we work the budget of the state of Michigan like, you know, our residents of the state of Michigan are required to do on a monthly and yearly basis. You know, folks across Michigan don't have enough money in their budget to either make cuts in their budget bill or they get another job so they can have more funds coming in. Unfortunately, government just always wants to raise taxes and go back to the pocket of people that they serve. What we did is we made we were responsible, but we also increased funding to schools. That was a big uh, that, that was a big step for us, and it was showing the governor in this first step of negotiations that we can fund the roads without doing a 45-cent gas tax increase. Because the people can't afford 45-cent gas tax increase because they don't because they can't afford it, Bill. They don't support it, and the House will not be passing it. We've talked about lawsuits uh, a couple of minutes ago. I think you and Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky filed a couple of lawsuits this week involving the so-called petition law reform bill that passed late last year that Dana Nessel has ruled is unconstitutional. What's that all about? Well, I think we've entered a day and age, Bill, um, where, you know, the, the, the time when you served in the Michigan House, things have changed slightly, where I think we have a little bit more of legislation for litigation, and a lot of things are being battled out in the court. Um, you know, that was a, a bill that was passed that we believe was fair and it follows a model of what we require those who are running for governor and other statewide offices to do, uh, to gather certain percentages of signatures from across the entire state. And uh, that's what we required in this language that was passed. It was deemed unconstitutional. Again, I disagree. Uh, but at the same time, Bill, I'm the Speaker of the House, and I'm not the Attorney General. So uh, we're going to be doing all we can to, to fight for the bills that we passed. 
out of the Michigan House and Michigan Senate was passed by the governor. And uh, hopefully we land in the right spot because I think the bills that we passed were, were good legislation. That's Speaker Lee Chatfield, Republican of Levering, 107th House District. Thank you so much, Mr. Speaker, for your words. Hey, thanks a lot, Bill. Look forward to being on with you again sometime soon. Have a great weekend. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are going all the way to the state of Virginia, I believe, for our next guest at the University of Virginia, Charlottesville. He is Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball. Welcome to The Political Insider, Kyle Kondik. Thanks for having me, Bill. You wrote a great article on your website, Sabato's Crystal Ball, this week entitled The Shadow of 1998. Just tell us briefly what was all that about and how does it relate to what's going on today? Well, I think the 1998 election is coming up a lot right now uh, because of the fact that Democrats now are sort of considering whether to open impeachment proceedings against the president. And uh, so I think it's natural to sort of look back to the last time where impeachment kind of hung over an election, which was the 1998 midterm, where um, House Republicans decided to uh, open impeachment proceedings of Bill Clinton, uh, and actually did that uh, um, just about a month before that election. Of course, that was because of um, the, the the Star report and uh, Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky and and his subsequent untruths about it. Um, and uh, you know, I think the Republicans were really hopeful that um, that, that impeachment would help would help sort of uh, you know deliver them a big midterm victory. And it didn't turn out that way. That the Democrats actually netted four seats in the House. They didn't win the majority, but they cut a little bit into the Republican majority. Uh, and it was it's one of only three midterms uh, of the forty conducted since the Civil War. Um, which is essentially the entire history of uh, of our current two-party alignment, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. Uh, it's one of only three times in the Civil War where the president's party actually picked up seats in uh, in the House in a midterm. And uh, impeachment is popular, remember, as, as playing a big role in why the Republicans didn't pick up seats. Um, that said, I think that, that particularly then-Speaker Newt Gingrich, he was talking about you know picking up dozens of seats potentially that year. And if you really go and look at the seats being contested, the overall political environment, which was that despite impeachment, Clinton's approval ratings were really very good, um, that we were in a time of relative peace and prosperity. I doubt that Republicans were going to have some sort of big election if they had not pursued impeachment. But there are some examples of where impeachment may have cost the Republicans some some number of seats. Well, we're in a time of relative peace and prosperity right now, but we got a president whose approval ratings are not as high as Bill Clinton's were in 1998. So with everything reversed and the Democrats now in control of the House and a Republican president, uh, what do you think 1998 tells us about uh, what's going to happen in the next uh, 20 months? Ultimately, I don't know if it provides much of a lesson for either side, given that the circumstances are a lot different. Of course, 1998 was a midterm year where you generally don't expect that high of turnout as it was. I think turnout was about 38% that year, which is sort of in keeping with what midterm turnout is. Now, obviously, in, in 2018, we had more like 50% turnout nationally, which really was very high for a midterm. Um, but, you know, going into this presidential election, there's good reason to believe that both sides are very much engaged, which I think the, the, mid, the high midterm turnout is, is almost suggestive of. 
And so there's some thought that impeachment may have helped motivate some of the Democratic base voters to show up in 1998 who might otherwise not have. And I think Democrats are fearful that if they pursue impeachment, it would only serve to enrage president supporters even more. But again, I think motivation is still really high. And so if you pursue impeachment as a Democrat, I just wonder if it actually would really change much. Now, in terms of the numbers of actually removing the president, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the House can impeach a president with a simple majority vote, which then initiates essentially a trial in the Senate over the charges on which the Chief Justice Supreme Court um, presides. But in order to actually remove the president um, on any of these ch- charges that might come up, come up, you need two-thirds vote in the Senate. And of course, Republicans didn't have um, close to two-thirds of the seats back in 1998. And, uh, you know, Democrats only hold 47 of the 100 Senate seats um, this time. And so they would need a significant chunk of the Republican Senate caucus to go along with them to actually remove the president, which doesn't really seem practical. So the question then becomes, as a political and electoral matter, are Democrats able to make a better case against Trump in 2020 if they impeach or if they do not impeach? And I... I think Speaker Pelosi believes that they can make the case better right now without impeaching. Um, I personally don't know what to think about it, and I don't know if 1998 provides much guidance. I think to most people who look back at, or many people who look back at 1998, they think, oh, well, impeachment will be bad because it was bad for Republicans in 1998. But my just point is that impeachment probably wasn't as bad for Republicans in 98 as popular, popularly remembered. And I don't know if whatever lessons you could draw are necessarily applicable to uh, this upcoming election. On Thursday of this week, uh, we had a Republican, John James, announce he is going to take on U.S. Senator Gary Peters next year. Gary Peters uh, serving his first uh, six-year term in the U.S. Senate after six years as a U.S. representative. Um, John James, of course, ran against Debbie Stabenow last year. when she was running for re-election, he came within six and a half points, which was considered a lot better than people thought he'd do at the beginning. How do things look to you and Sabato's crystal ball uh, at that race? Um, so we're in a time period now where um, Senate and presidential results um, have come really largely into alignment. Um, granted, there's some variation in the vote, uh, as there always has been, but it used to be that there was a lot of ticket splitting that would go on in um, you know, presidential races versus Senate races in the states that have Senate races during presidential year. Um, but 2016 was actually the first year ever uh, in the history of the popular election of senators, which goes back about 100 years, where every single state that had a Senate race in 2016 voted for the same party for president and also for U.S. Senate. And I personally think that, that the Democratic nominee, the Democratic nominee's best chance to win back any Trump won state, I think, is Michigan. I think it was probably the flukiest of the president's wins. I think it's the one place where Democrats can just count on a little bit better turnout in. Uh, basically in, in, in Detroit in order to uh, flip the results from 20, uh, 2016. And so we have the Democrats narrowly favored in the presidential race in Michigan. We, we rate it lean Democratic in our crystal ball ratings. And since we don't think there's going to be too much crossover voting in the Senate race, we also have Gary Peters um, as rated as lean Democratic, and that we had that um, rating prior to James announcing his candidacy. I do think that James gives uh, Republicans a candidate who ran a decent race last time, um, has built up a little bit of a national fundraising profile. Um, that said, I think that I, I personally think that James will need Trump win to win the state in order to 
beat an incumbent senator. And you might expect Gary Peters to be able to run a little bit ahead of the Democratic nominee, given that he, he is an incumbent. And you know, he, he is not particularly well-known. Um, in fact, if you look at you know, name recognition polls of many of the U.S. senators, Peters usually ranks near the bottom. Um, at the same time, I do think Peter's electoral history is, is, is somewhat impressive, both from some of his House races and various scenarios, and then also um, he won by double digits in 2014, which really was a terrible, um, uh, terrible Democratic year nationally, although I think, you know, Peter's opponent, uh, Terry Lynn Landon, in 2014 didn't, didn't end up running a particularly good campaign. So from that standpoint, I think you'd expect James to be a more viable contender against Peter's but I still give Peters a little bit of an edge, and I also give the Democrats a little bit of an edge to um, reclaim Michigan's electoral votes. And, and look, there isn't any path to the White House for Democrats without Michigan at this particular point in time. Yeah, I love your slogan. I'm going to paraphrase here. Sabato's crystal ball is like, he who lives by the crystal ball sometimes eats ground glass. Is that correct? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we try to be, you know, we try to be a little bit modest about our predictions. You know, we had some troubles in 2016, just like many of our uh, many of our cohorts in the industry. There were certain times where it seemed like that race was going to be really close, and then, um, you know, throughout October, as many will recall, there were all sorts of ups and ups and downs. And uh, but uh, you know, I, we didn't we didn't do particularly great in 2016 presidential, but uh, we have a pretty decent track record, I think, otherwise. Um, and, uh, you know, our, also our, our, our other motto is from you know, my boss, Larry Sabato, who's been doing this for a long time, is that, you know, politics is a good thing in that, um, uh, you know, for as much as Americans seem to get upset about, about politics and we're, we're, uh, you know, we've got this rancorous partisanship, um, you know, politics is a way that we sort of come together to try to solve problems, make our various arguments, and it's important for people to uh, engage in politics and try to understand them and try to understand elections in them. And that's sort of what we, we try to do at Center for Politics, to try to uh, um, talk about politics in a, you know, in a way that's easy to understand and also one in which we sort of try to engage people. That is Kyle Kondik. He is managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball. You can go see it online. S-A-B-A-T-O apostrophe S. Sabato's Crystal Ball. Thank you so much, Kyle Kondik. Thank you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with our final guest. He is Eli Yokley. He is a political reporter for Morning Consult, which is a national polling firm. Uh, welcome to The Political Insider, Eli Yokley. Hey, good morning. Uh let me just ask you, what exactly is Morning Consult? Um, when did you start? Um, how big is it? How many clients and what kind are they? How often do you do polls? Yeah, we do a lot of polls, man. Um, you know, Morning Consult started five or six years ago um, and has had a pretty robust newsroom for a long time. That's where I am. I spend a lot of time uh, tracking Donald Trump and a lot of senators and governors and and up on Capitol Hill, what a time to be alive up there right now. It's just a whole, a whole new world. Um, and there's a pretty robust uh, polling shop on, on the other side of things um, that does a lot of work for uh, a lot of pretty big companies in the country, trying to help them with market research and trying to figure out what's going on with consumers. And, and so I focus a lot on the voter side of it. Yeah, you're located where? We're in Washington, D.C. So. 
Okay, and this week, um, I see you had three polls. I think one uh, had President Trump's approval rating in each state. Um, You concluded that he remains underwater in most 2020 battlegrounds. You also had a poll on uh, Democrats are fired up about women's issues, and you had a poll about uh, Mueller's findings, uh, whether they'll affect the 2020 vote. Can you talk a little bit about those polls? Yeah, well, the, the, one of the big things we do is uh, these state-by-state trackings, and, and we look at we've been looking at Donald Trump for a while. And you know, when Donald Trump started his presidency in, in places like Michigan, he was above water. I mean, about half of voters approved of him. Um, that'll change um, pretty early into his, his presidency, and, and the state stayed pretty solid. Um, about 54% of folks in Michigan uh, disapprove of the president today, putting him about 12 points underwater. Uh, big deal as we look to 2020 whenever I think that he's going to be eyeing places like Michigan, especially with a, what could be a competitive uh, Senate race there. Um, you know, that's where this Mueller thing comes in. You know, we, had, we, we did a survey over the weekend last week and, and found that about half of voters are kind of shrugging at the findings of Robert Mueller. This is one of those big issues that has dominated a lot of time on cable news and on social media and here in, inside Washington, but this is something we've found has not really broken through in the minds of voters. Donald Trump, his approval rating, the way folks see him has been very solid. I will say a little caveat on that is among folks who did say it, it affected their vote, um, it was more likely to hurt him than affect him. The big thing we're watching here going forward, though, is, is impeachment talk. Um, you know, the share of Democrats who say uh, the Congress should move forward with impeachments going up. It's almost seven in ten now. It's up ten points since April. So they've heard a little bit about this and, and, and changed their minds. Voters overall have it, and voters are mostly split on whether or not uh, Trump should be impeached. And so I think that's what we're seeing here in D.C. as Nancy Pelosi. Uh, tries to thread this needle very closely, saying these forceful things about Donald Trump to, to fire up the base, but holding back when it comes to, to actions like impeachment. Yeah, another poll you did uh, talked about Democrats being fired up about women's issues in the wake of this wave of anti-abortion laws being passed at the state level. Uh, what about that? Yeah, well, we've seen every week we track the uh, issues voters care about the most, and um, you know, the is- issues like those affecting women have been uh, pretty low on the priority list. Issues like health care, the economy, jobs, uh, security usually are the ones that are, that are high. Um, but we've seen among Democratic voters a pretty good jump, um, especially among uh, Democratic women. Um, about 2 in 10 uh, Democratic men, about 15 percent of Democratic women say these issues are their top priority. Um, those include abortion and equal pay. Um, these big talk of, of the Democratic primary debate right now. I mean, we're seeing a, a big debate play out about the Hyde Amendment, this, this, uh, this provision in federal law that bans money from being used for abortion. Joe Biden announced, said this week that he was for it and then had to turn within 48 hours. And so I, I think that this is why you're saying these candidates start to kind of lean in on some of these big issues. One of the things that you do that's really interesting to me is that you document uh, on a regular basis, tracking poll, you'd call it, uh, the um, recognition name ID uh, of, let's say, all 110 U.S. senators over time. And uh, here in Michigan, 
I noticed in your polls that our incumbent Democrat, Gary Peters, who's going to be running for re-election next year, is literally number 100 out of 100 senators <laughs> in name ID. I mean, something incredible, like 43% of the people in Michigan don't even know who he is. Is this going to be a big problem for him next year? You know, the, the way I, I thought you'd ask me about this, since we're calling into Michigan here, um, the, the way we've looked at, at this in the past is, um, you know, senators who have not been well-known um, sometimes perform fine. Um, sometimes they don't perform fine. I'm thinking of a couple of years ago, Dean Heller in Nevada was one of the uh, one of the least known senators, I think. Um, Gary Peters is the least known senator in the country, and he's been that way for a really long time in our tracking. And, uh, you know, that, that what that means for him is that um, whenever the Republicans start spending millions of dollars in TV ads, um, they're working from sort of a blank state, slate. And those ads may be more effective if folks don't have opinions on him already. Um, what's interesting, too, about this, by the way, I, I dug into this, um, about four in ten Democrats, his base, don't know who he is, don't have views on him. That, that could be an issue as, um, as things play out, if that solid base is not there for him. Um, Republicans recruited a big candidate this week, John James. Uh, that is going to be a big deal um, for him next year as somebody who's run before um, you know, and, and, and uh, had sort of a base of folks who already know who he is. So, I mean, John James actually at this point could be as well-known as Gary Peters. Or more well-known. I mean, you know, Debbie Stabenow um, is pretty well-known. I mean, I think it was like a like maybe a fifth of folks or a fourth of folks who don't know who she is. Um, you know, she ran that race last a couple of years ago and um, had sort of that base of support. Uh, what's going to be interesting for Gary Peters, and I think this might help him, it might hurt him, but it's going to be something he thinks about is, is uh, Trump's focus on this state. You know, Trump's team has been projecting they're they're worried about the fact that there's going to be a, a strong Republican Senate candidate. They think that's going to fire up fire up voters in the state for the Democrats. So, uh, you know, this is going to be one of those races to watch as we start thinking about what what Senate races across the country uh, we need to be looking at. You ran another poll um, this week, or at least you announced the result, uh, talking about Mueller's report and whether it's going to affect the vote um, next year, let's say here in Michigan, 2020, or nationally. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you come up with there? Yeah, well, we found about half of the voters said that the conclusions of this report don't matter, um, you know, when thinking about their vote next year. Um, about, a, about a quarter of folks said it would make them less likely to vote for the president. Um, and, and, you know, the... the, the Trump's opponents definitely have the advantage on this. Um, but, you know, we've found across the country that this is just not the top issue for folks. Um, Democrats want to see impeachment, um, but, like, you know, a lot of other folks don't. They're thinking about other issues in this in this uh, election. I think that this is going to be something that you've seen a lot of Democratic presidential candidates come out and talk about impeachment. You've seen the House moving, uh, Democrats in the House moving toward it. One of, one of your own, uh, Justin Amash, has come out and said he's for it. Um, but that's still not enough. And uh, I think what we're going to see in the next few weeks, uh, the House Judiciary Committee is talking about subpoenaing Robert Mueller to come testify. Um, putting him on camera uh, for, for a day um, might do more to affect these numbers. But, you know, we saw him come out a couple of weeks ago or last week, and, and it really didn't change much. President 
Trump's approval rating here in Michigan is 42%, according to your poll, and 54% disapproval. It's about the same in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. He's underwater in all three of those pivotal states. What do you think that means in terms of what's likely to happen next year? Can a president this far underwater, this far out from the election, recover and carry those states? Well, one of the things we have to remember is that the president's approval doesn't mean uh, we're not trying to predict a vote with this. Um, but it, what it does say is that um, views have shifted about him in these states. I mean, for, for a few months of his presidency, at least Donald Trump was popular in these states. Um, that's changed a lot. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump, a lot is going to depend here for the president on, on who Democrats nominate. And um, before we start trying to predict uh, the outcome here, but you know, we've seen that you know, a lot of the Democrats were up in, in, in your state. And um, whenever we saw Paul come out this week about this, um, Donald Trump is certainly weak. And um, Democrats have a big opportunity to take him out. It's just a question of whether they'll nominate a candidate who can do it. Okay, that is Eli Yokely. He is political reporter with Morning Consult. I want to thank you very much, Eli, for giving us real insight. I know you're going to be coming out with a lot more polls between now and November 2020. We'll look forward to them. Thank you, Eli Yokely.